Welcome back to Killer Fun. I'm Christy. I'm Jackie. And we're so glad you're back with us. We explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. Well, except this week. Yep. It's been the holidays. We had a Christmas episode a couple weeks ago, and man, kids are out of school, and it's just busy, and we decided we needed a little bit of a break. We do need a little bit of a break, but you know what? There's stuff I want to hear again. Yeah, exactly. So I thought, since we enjoyed the Handmaid's Tale episode so very much, I thought it was worth sharing again, because man, it's still just as timely as when the first episode of that Hulu original show aired and when we covered it several months ago and today. Yeah. It's Maybe timeless. It, it, it really is. It really is. And it's, I think, well, you know, you say that you say it's timeless and I actually think it's more timely than when it was written in the eighties. Ooh, interesting. I think it's more, it concerns me more and feels a little more accessible and real than it did then, because I can remember reading it in the early 90s. It was written in the 80s, but I didn't read it until then, the early 90s when I was in high school. And thinking, boy, I'm so glad that could never happen here. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I feel less like it could never happen here now than I did when I was 17. So do you see my? I don't know if you yeah. can see my gears turning. They I can't. Can. They can't see my they, gears turning. They can't, but I can. I should come up with a sound effect so that they know <laughs> when I'm when I'm processing. Uh huh. Because I'm wondering how much of it is that it is definitely a time change versus it's we're at an age where we can see more than we saw. Um, both. I think. You think it's both? I really do. I think that it's. I've reached an age where I can see it and understand it more, but I also feel like a lot of the way things have been moving, it's a little more frightening and a little more scary than it was initially, which is why I think it's such a powerful television medium now that seeing it as a television program rather than just reading the book is so impactful. Right, because you have this visual that just, it kind of emblazons in your mind Yeah, this idea, and it's hard to shake. But I think, yeah, definitely have those emotions, that will to fight, that sense of defeat. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, just rotating together yeah. and having, because well, she's an amazing actress. Yes. She's just, and having that brought to life yeah. is impactful. Yeah. 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 Well, I have to think about that. Because I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah. Well, you have a lot of thoughts now. And we had a lot of thoughts. Oh, so many months ago. Oh, we had a lot of thoughts. So we're going to leave you with those thoughts now. And we'll catch up with you at the end. Welcome back to Killer Fun. I'm Christy. I'm Jackie. We explored the intersection of crime and entertainment every couple of weeks. And we are back with you today. Jackie and I have watched the first episode of The Handmaid's Tale. I have seen all of the episodes that have come out thus far, but Jackie had not seen it at all. No, and I had never read the book either, which you have. And I read the book... I've read the book many times, not in a number of years, but I have read it many times. The first time when I was a senior in high school, and I remember thinking then, I'm so glad this could never really happen. And here we are, you know, the late 20 teens. And 
it's as frightening as it ever was. It's definitely frightening. It's especially <laughs> frightening because not that there's an epidemic. Can we? Are we going to spoiler before I say what I'm about to say? Um, I think if people haven't seen it or read the book, it's because they don't want to. So I'm not worried about spoilers. Okay, so what I'm about to say might be a spoiler. So it's not that there's an epidemic of infertility going on right now. Right. But there are countries that have documented population drops. Oh. And babies are not coming like they used to. Hmm. And in fact, some of the countries are nearing what they call that point of no return where the population is going to can't dropping. yeah, they can't mm. start repopulating um whereas there's always been this increase. If you drop below a certain rate, your population can no longer Recover. reproduce and recover. Right. Yeah. So um wow. so it's kind of freaky to me because I've never seen it, but when they started talking about this, I'm thinking <gasps> Well, not that I've seen any kind of epidemic of infertility or or miscarriages or anything like that. However, the population stuff is in the news, and that's kind of weird. So. Well, I mean, the population stuff is in the news that way, but it's also in the news as people are choosing not to have children. But we're still... Our planet is nearing overpopulation status. Right. So... Uh, it's sticky. It is sticky. You don't want to see a country not be able to recover. Right. But you also don't want to make people have babies when they're not choosing to. Yes. And we don't want to overpopulate the world. And yet, but, people uh, but, are lovely. We <laughs> like more of them. So. <laughs> we love people. Yeah. So before we get into our proper Handmaid's discussion tale, okay. I was thinking about what kinds of intersection of crime and entertainment might... Or like true crime because we always do a little bit of true crime stuff at the top that would kind of go along with this okay so i was thinking about some of the themes that were that are in the show as a whole as well as that we saw in the very first episode fertility being one right and women not being allowed to read oh yeah so we'll start with the fertility stuff so there's a doctor in Canada being sued because there are 11 children who are biologically his that weren't supposed to be. Oh, no. Yeah. So it's a class action lawsuit right now because Dr. Norman Barwin used his sperm without the knowledge or consent of patients. Oh, uh-huh. oh, yeah. Ooh, really like ugly and squeaky and ooh. What would, what would motivate somebody to violate other people in this way? To well, just... well, and I think that's the big question. We'll get into that in a little bit. But like, was it power? Was it, you know, a desire to see himself live on? Was it, was he genuinely trying to help people whose maybe the sperm didn't have good motility or whatever? Right. Maybe you know? he had a problem but, with his business because if you have people coming in and expecting you, doctor, to make them fertile or create for them babies and you're like, if I turn away too many people, then maybe they'll think it's my fault. So if I can create happy clients, mm-hmm. so maybe it was for his business too. Yeah, well, I don't know. Well, does they do they say anything about? Well, um, the the articles that I read, um, he was supposed to use the sperm from the male in a couple, and sometimes he was supposed to use anonymous sperm, and instead he just like used his own. Oh. 
And it's not clear why. Evidently, so there's like 11 individuals now who are a part of this lawsuit, but they believe that this dates back all the way into the 1970s. Oh, my and gosh. There, there were 16 children prior to this who were found not to be biological matches to the sperm donor, whether that be the male of the couple that they were in or the, the anonymous donor. The anonymous <gasps> donor. And that there is another, no, I'm sorry, 16 children who were not related to the fathers they were supposed to have been related to, not necessarily related to him, but not related to the father that was supposed to be giving the sperm. And 35 children who were supposed to have an anonymous donor who then don't match to that anonymous donor. 62 children. 62 And this all came about because a lady named Rebecca Dixon started a lawsuit in 2016 because her parents went to Dr. Barwin's clinic in 1989 to help them conceive. Oh, no. And then she realized only as an adult that her DNA didn't match that of her father. And when they went to go talk to the clinic, they couldn't help but notice that Rebecca bore an uncanny physical resemblance to Dr. Barwin. Yeah. Wow. So she ended up connecting with another woman, uh, Kat Palmer, who was also conceived at Barwin's clinic. And they did one of the 23andMe oh, type yeah. type We've things, talked about this before. which we have talked about before, and found out that they shared a father, that they're siblings, and they got it through the Ancestry website, which is also how they caught the Golden State Killer. Right. I'm this like, is coming up a lot, this it, whole it, Well, it thing. is. I think that there's finally like these connections that were never able to quite be made before. Yeah, totally being made. Like, that's crazy. So now these people are suing. Yes. What are they suing for? Is it a criminal suit or is it a civil suit? Because that sounds civil. It it is a civil suit. Okay. Um, And I actually have some interesting thoughts from attorneys in Canada about whether criminal charges. Charges. Thank you. Whether criminal charges should be brought against this okay. doctor. We have Jillian Natchu, really unusual spelling of her last name, N-H-A-T-I-W. Oh. I had to look up the pronunciation, Natchu. She said that no, a doctor knowingly impregnating a patient with their own sperm is not necessarily a criminal act but that she would say given the ways in which society often trivializes sexual misconduct particularly when perpetuated against women the criminal law as an important has an important role to play in publicly denouncing and deterring this man's abhorrent acts right i just can't believe this isn't criminal 
Well, I mean, I get it from a civil suit because it's a breach of contract, but I mean, did these people go in and sign a waiver? I understand I may or may not get a child related to me. I'm sure I not. Mean, <laughs> don't I'm sure so. Well, and you know, but nevertheless, makes, it's, yeah. it's very, um, it's got an unethical and immoral status to it, in my opinion. Yes. So uh, another attorney, Carissima Mathan, I don't have a settled view. I think it's potentially tenuous. The question of whether his cons- this constitutes the application of force, which is what you would need for assault, I think potentially there's an issue as to whether this falls under the definition. No yeah. consent. It's not. Con- well, they consented to a medical procedure. They did, but, but they and didn't it was so and to, so yeah, but they didn't consent to having the doctor's sperm. It's very right. So it's so like squicky and sexual assault. But is it sexual assault? Well, I mean, but it's kind of sexual. It's kind assault. of sexual assault. It's assault sexual in the reproduction age. assault. Right? It, yeah. I mean, it's very. Ooh, it's very very. There needs to be a new term for this. Well, maybe people should just stop doing it. <laughs> like, do I mean? I guess yes. We need language for this, but I, you well, know, I hate more and more people go. Oh, jeez. Let's hope this isn't happening all over. Well, it, it begs mean, the question, right? Well, and how do you know this guy's been doing this since the seventies? Well, and how do you know if you go to a fertility clinic and you're looking to do some kind of in vitro? that this isn't happening, how do you as a parent, a potential parent to a child, have a check and balance on this? And I don't know that you can. So if I think that it falls criminally under malpractice. Hmm. I, I would agree. I would agree that would be a malpractice. Mm-hmm. But I think that there needs to be a criminal aspect to the violation that these women... Yes, and the men. The men and are the men forced too. Well, into this. Yeah, I mean, one of Rebecca Dixon, her father was heartbroken when they found out they weren't biologically right. related. Now, the you know, there's the argument that it does biology doesn't make a family. It right. can, but it doesn't have to. That certainly there are adopted children or children who were conceived with donor sperm definitely it's a family but man it's it's just it's tough and of course right now i'm thinking of a golden girls episode oh oh, of course because that's what i do right okay so there's the episode where sophia and dorothy um they have a visit from some old friends from brooklyn and they come and they are living back in italy and they are going to uh, arrange a marriage with their daughter so their friend's daughter Uh is getting an arranged marriage Apparently, they love each other, though. Anyways, so for the arranged marriage, they did a blood test, and they found out (laughs) that the child couldn't be theirs. Well, do you know how Sophia and this friend met? They were in labor at the same hospital, (gasps) and they had the babies within minutes. And so there's this question that their babies were switched at birth. And so they can't, this cannot be their child. And so they come and they say, there's no other way. It has to be. So Dorothy, Dortea must be our daughter. And, and this is your daughter. And it's funny because, you know, their daughter is about four feet tall, which is about how tall (laughs) Sophia is. And, you know, Dorothy's a redwood and the mother is, is also a redwood. So they're, 
it's like, oh, the comedy ensues just no, visually. I and so imagine. there's this horrible thing that they're going through. And Sophia's like, well, Sophia's like, Sophia, whatever. We're going to take a blood test. And Dorothy's like, but you might not be my mother. Ma, Mrs. Patrillo to you. You know, she's just being all <laughs> Mrs. flippant. Mrs. Patrillo to you. And so they're being flippant and they go and Dorothy's really struggling through this whole thing. And so they get the blood test and uh, Sophia tells this absolutely endearing story about the first day that she drops her off at school and how mm-hmm. Dorothy had been, had this child be mean to her, bullied was mm-hmm. what, and um, how the teacher never saw it. And so Sophia thought Dorothy would come home and say, oh, I, I had a horrible time. But instead she came home and said, oh, I met this new friend. And so Dorothy's well, like, that's really sweet. Wait. If the teacher never saw it, how do you know what really happened? And Sophia says, I stood at the window. I watched all day in case you needed me. That's what a mother does. And she rips up the blood test without even looking at Aww. it. So there's this like uber yeah. endearing moment. And so we actually never know whether Aww. Dorothy and Sophia are actually related. But in that moment, uh-huh. it didn't matter. Yeah. Ma was Ma and right. Pussycat was Pussycat. And yeah. that was it. <laughs> For sure. For sure. So that was all interesting and squicky and I just... Yeah, that's all Oh man, it's just, it's tough. Tough to deal with. And then there is this article. I'm going to... I haven't read the actual article because it costs $10 to read this article. (laughs) I love abstracts. (laughs) So, but I think I'm trying to decide whether I want to go ahead and maybe read it. Maybe spend the $10 to read it. Oh, it's that good, huh? Oh, well, or not good. (laughs) Let me read you the abstract. Please. It's uh, the article is titled "Unmarried Fertility, Crime, and Social Stigma" by Todd Kendall and Robert Tamura. Children born to unmarried parents may receive lower capital investments, leading to higher levels of criminal activity as adults. Therefore, unmarried fertility may be positively associated with future crime. Alternatively, in an environment in which social stigma attached to non-marital fertility is high, many low-match quality parents will marry, and children reared in these families may actually be worse off than if their parents had not married. We explore these effects empirically, finding that over the long run, unmarried fertility is positively associated with murder and property crime, but that the degree of social stigma has affected this relationship. For instance, our results suggest that some marriages in the 1940s and 1950s were of such low quality that the children involved would have been better off in single-parent households. However, this finding is reversed for marriages in the 1960s thereafter. Many marriages would have benefited children were foregone. So what year was this study done? 2010. Okay. By the way, I might have access to this. Oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. Huh. I would like to to know because there seems like a lot right there that it's troubling. It is troubling. And I would say in my studies, this is not new information to me. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's not new information, which is horrible. I really, well, it is. And it really, it bothers me that they would classify them as low quality Right, which they just mean the relationship isn't great. People okay, who are unmatched well. Okay. Like like marrying somebody who you fight with all the time just because you are pregnant. Okay, so it's not a 
It's not a intelligence. No, issue. I think I think if I'm reading and, and I read a lot of abstracts, in my right? Life, um, but if I'm reading that correctly empirically, that just means it's a low quality match as far as a relationship is concerned. Okay. Um, so like you shouldn't just get married because you got pregnant, pregnant because right. that guy and you may yeah. be a disaster. In which case, that's a low quality match versus like you and me who have awesome husbands. Yeah, exactly. And, um, high quality match. Yes. Yes, high quality match. Yes, but see, and maybe I didn't make that connection because our husbands are both intelligent, as are, I believe, you and I. Yes, so, I believe that. I, <laughs> some days. So. Some days I really have to question myself. <laughs> yeah, well, that's me too. So yeah. This is well, really interesting, though, because I have heard this association before, and it is, it's very harsh, but I think what's really important in here is in an environment in which sto- social stigma attached to non-marital fertility is high, then many low-match quality parents will marry because of the stigma of being a single parent, and then though that's even worse off. That's worse than being a being single mom. A, being a single parent right. to... and you know, just making a go of it and hopefully, hopefully finding a good quality match later. Right. And I think it is hard to admit this because I personally have no problem with single parents. No, I, you know, but this kind of makes you ironically, it attaches a social stigma to it because we think, Oh, well, well, and that was like, I'm like, they're talking about empirical, but didn't they just, Put a social stigma on it. It's the adverse impact of doing a study like this. Yeah. Because if you see the positive association, then you kind of perpetuate it. On the other hand, if you don't acknowledge, then there's nothing you can do to fix it. Okay. Because the low socioeconomic status of certain families means, okay, well, then that family has to work more. If they're working more, they're less attentive to the kids because okay. they come home, they're exhausted, they're tired. It's not that they love their children less, but they just don't have as much to give because they have have to put shelter, food, and those things above it, except that kids equally need social, emotional coaching, guidance, quality, quantity, time, availability, and you can't give all of that, but you have to choose. And well, you could give them all the social time in the world, but if you don't feed them, they die. So parents go to work. Yeah. Then they come home. And when that environment is perpetuated, children are often more apt to make bad decisions early on Okay, that would just be innocent bad decisions, but they're really bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And then they start a pattern. And then once they're in a pattern, the parent's still at work. Yeah. How does the parent get to them? Um, So that's where having your social network involved is so, so important. But Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the social stigma is horrible. But on the other hand, how can you help and know how to be a better support system unless you recognize that these parents need more of us as a society? Okay. We need better laws about family time off. We need better work hours. People need to be paid a living wage to be able to not have to work 60 hours a week. Um, in order to make ends meet. Right. Right. Um, so these are the kind of situations that I think articles like this are trying to hope. Okay. Hopefully address. Um, not that they're trying to add a social okay. stigma. So I'm, I'm reading this from a lay person mm-hmm. and you're reading it from there, a psychology major and current psychology student. Yeah. So it means something different to you than it, it means to me because I read this and I was like, what in the fresh hell is this? 
<laughs> this yeah. sounds like poppycock to me. Yeah. <laughs> it is hard to acknowledge because you don't want to judge. Because yeah. you don't want to lay judgment where it's undue. There are some amazing low-income, uh-huh. single-parent families who are rocking it yeah. every day. I would say that that there are some amazing people out there, but it's hard because it it is a truth that okay. those kids are more at risk for certain things. Okay. And so it's hard to admit that without also then making people feel bad about it. But on the other hand, just like in our marriages or in our job, if we don't receive accurate feedback about what's going on, how can you address it? So I think the key is to not internalize it as a judgment of character, but to acknowledgement as a status in which we're trying to change. Right. Okay. So, but where do we draw the line between this is something that we want to change either by changing a situation where parents are around more or giving a social safety net so to speak, in the in the form of perhaps more help, more people around to help these kids, and blaming parents for psychotic offspring. <laughs> well, right. because I'm like, you can't, you can't. Most people who are have a single parent don't become serial murderers. Well, and that's the that's the statistical logic that has to be addressed here. Right. It's not that most. People who have single parents become criminals. It's that most criminals had single parents. Hmm. Does that make sense? So, for instance, if we're going to talk about sexual predators. Okay. Okay. Most people who were sexually abused do not become sexual predators. But most sexual sexual predators were were sexually sexually abused. abused. That is a huge dichotomy. It's all bananas are fruit, but not all fruit are bananas. Yeah, that's okay. a statistical divide. So I would say, like a study like this would not be would not be helpful in the hands of people who are counseling the single parent. Maybe um, <laughs> I would say that community centers would would benefit very much by understanding this because okay. they could apply their resources better. Okay, um, yeah, I would say schools would be very. Uh, very well helped by understanding this so they can provide uh, help where it's due. I would say the state, cities, even the federal government understanding this could apply welfare opportunities or um, social safety nets, as we mentioned, uh, better at understanding this. Not because two-parent homes don't deserve it, but because, quite frankly, a single-parent home has more need. And if we understand that, okay, it's more urgent in this situation versus this situation, then we can apply resources resources better for those families. So this would be something that would go into the hands of your um, social workers. Okay. Oh, well, that's interesting. Okay. Well, um, so you do have access to that article. Um, Do you mind? Maybe we could both review it Mm -hmm. and talk about it next time. Absolutely. Okay. Let's do it. Because I think that would be interesting. Yes. Okay. And I'm sorry. It was something we can post. You could absolutely find the abstract, but um, and we can put the reference up there. Right. I'll put, I'll put a link up to the abstract. And if, if, uh, you know somebody who has access to a journal article site or if you have it yourself and would like to review it before we do it. Otherwise, we'll give you kind of an overview 
um, and our interpretations of it, because I think that would be really interesting. Okay, we well, did. I almost didn't bring that up, so I'm glad I I'm did. I'm kind of glad you did. It was I'm fun. I'm glad I did, too. I All think right. it's a hard subject, but it's worth it talking about. And I think there's some really good movies out there and things Ooh. that really kind of address this issue of of a single parent dealing with, with the issue of coming home and being tired and not being able to. Often we see the superhero stories. Right. So I'm going to get a list together of things that might be interesting to watch that maybe uh, more accurately. And, and I would say that also, just to clarify, that not all single parent families are experiencing this. No, absolutely I not. I would say that although it's it's a lot and it's it's a group worth helping, not all people who grow up in single parent families have this issue. Right. Um, but there are a lot of people who do. But and I it's think worth maybe every, every family could benefit for, from some help. Oh, and yeah. And particularly single parent families where, you know, however that comes about, mm-hmm. whether there is never one of the parents in the picture, there's a death, mm-hmm. there's a divorce, right? however we can help those people. Maybe uh, you'll make a list and let me know which which ones you think would be good to review and pick one and you okay. and I will watch it and talk Ooh, about it. Yes, this is good. Yeah. And then we'll also put out on social media what the other ones were. Okay. And then we maybe we can put that out before yeah, the, next the next episode time. so people can watch it and follow along. That would be awesome. So if you want to find that on social media, you can find us at Killer Fun Podcast on Facebook, on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod, or you can email me at killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. Awesome. So that's interesting. Oh, good. All right. And then there were the other... There was also the... In the Handmaid's Tale, reading is a crime for women, which was really illustrated when the handmaids went to the grocery store and there was only pictures, no words on all of the packaged items. It was a picture of a cow for milk. It was picture of beans on the can of beans. There was no words like they were very particular it was really weird. It was, ooh, it was super creepy. So uh, I didn't want, it's a big time downer to look up <laughs> like where it's illegal for women to read. So, so what I looked at instead was an article from the Atlantic that men are pretending to be women to sell fiction thriller novels. What? So, which is quite the turn because everyone from the Bronte sisters to J.K. Rowling used either a male pseudonym or a gender non-specific name in order to be respected as writers. And now we have men writing under female or gender sounding pseudonyms in order to be able to sell fiction to women. There's an explosion of female oriented crime in the last five years. And so they've this has been a big thing just recently. So my first thought is Uh being a woman is trendy. Yay. Um, The second thought I have is, is it because that women don't want to hear a tale from a man? Because it turns out to look like mansplaining. But but because you know it's a man, you might read that into it. Whereas if they present themselves as gender neutral or as a female, you might be more apt to, to not read it as a... Um, I think it's part of that. Um, they, 
the author Sophie Gilbert, the author of this article in The Atlantic, said that uh, some of the success of writers like Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl, and Paula Hawkins, and Karen Slaughter, that it's not because they're women, it's because they're writing books from an unmistakably female lens. Oh. Yes, that men tend to tell you what a crime looks like. And women tell you what a crime feels like. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And since women are consume as much as 80% of the fiction market and 60 to 80% of the psychological crime thrillers, there is a financial reason for them to approach it in a female way. And I wonder if it's not a little bit misogynistic to say that crime fiction used to be geared towards men and that women are just now interested. I feel like that's a little... I think they've always been interested. And because we typically associate violent things with men, I think to that they're just now realizing that women read a lot of this, maybe quite a lot more than men, that I think maybe it was a little like we're breaking through a little bit of misogyny here by understanding that women are interested in reading about this stuff. And a valuable consumer that deserves the attention of those who are producing a product. Yes. You know, and definitely... I would say women have actually become kind of trendy in the market. Yeah. Um, because I think over time we realized that women are the purchasers. They are the power players in the house. And so things were marketed to women even as far back as like the 1940s and 50s. All the posters were and the artwork. What, soap operas? Right. It's marketed to women. But kind of without the respect of saying it's a true consumer. Yes. Whereas that has definitely changed um, where the product makers now even are thinking just like, about it. Even just really pretty recently, I right. think. Right. Yeah. Like, I think the the developers of these ad campaigns are trying to actually target women in a respectful way. That sounds, that's a sentence you don't say every day. Maybe in marketing you say it a lot. But like when I was running a business, you know, I targeted moms. But I think I wanted to do it respectfully. It wasn't because I thought that, well, they'll bite. It was more of a, they have a need and I I have a product. Um, I don't know. I'm Mm -hmm. kind of, it's just processing that. Wow. It's kind of interesting. Kelly Faircloth, who writes for Jezebel... Uh, somebody asked her if she thought it was lying that these men would use female sounding names. Her quote is, they're not lying exactly. It's just that if you're idly browsing in Barnes Noble looking for a Gone Girl style read, you won't encounter any immediate tells. I wonder if he also gets the infuriating emails or the creepy direct messages and generally patronizing baloney, like that goes along with being a woman author. I wonder if I do. I wonder that too. If they're seeing hmm. how women authors are typically treated, like especially in the internet age when we they have 
such free access. The trolls have free access, whereas they might have said to their buddies over a beer, these dumb women taken over our space. Now they have, they can say it anonymously on the internet, right? Two people. That was interesting. Well, that's very interesting. (sighs) And I wonder if maybe that won't like bring about a little bit more understanding Maybe so. I mean, the people have been using pseudonyms for a variety of reasons for a long time. And so, yeah, but not men as women. No, but women as men. Yes, because they got no respect. So it's, I, a, it's, it's a, not the thing. It's the motivation behind the thing that's different. Women had to do it yeah. in order to be successful. I get, I don't know, but what men are doing it to be successful. But it, it feels like um, yes, but it feels like they already have a leg up. Right. It feels like when men do it, it's like when Coca-Cola creates a new product and just gets bigger uh-huh. versus when women do it, they've just made like a little craft cola and are trying yeah, to make it the, into like their local pub. It's you the know? Etsy of, it's like, Thank it's, you. Like, it's like, a little different. It's like, you know, you make your own, you make a cola and your Coca-Cola, it's, you become bigger. It's, you're an entrepreneur making a cola that you sell on Etsy. You like, it's a struggle. You have to, yeah, it's a hobby that pays for itself. Right. Whereas kind of like podcasting, hopefully someday. (laughs) (laughs) That was a nice plug. I appreciate that. It's true, though. I mean, you get drowned out by the big ones. I mean, I made a little product, and I took it to market, and I had to fight against everyone else that was so much bigger, you know? So it does. It kind of feels like, yeah. 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 It does, doesn't it? When a large company makes a product and acts like it's some kind of boutique item, and you're like, it's not... Or they see the the homemade item, the homegrown item, and they make one that's just a little bit different and market it broadly and mass appeal. It feels like they're stealing something. They're stealing something. Instead of just doing what they have to do to actually be and not, you know, accepted. And I, right. And, you know, I love men. I want men to be successful. Absolutely. But... It, it doesn't. Well, it begs because I was just talking about these 1940s and 50s, and I'm thinking, I thought it changed, but maybe it hasn't at all. It, it has the appearance of change, but the underlying. Maybe we're not being issues. targeted with more respect at all. Maybe we're just being recognized as a consumer base. It's not that we're being marketed to with respect, we're being marketed to because they finally realize that we have potential to make them money. Right. Boy, I sound anti-capitalist. Well, it's very interesting (laughs) because I think it's a fine line. Yeah. You know, because I can't fault people like my grandmother who saw a a poster of a woman in heels vacuuming and thought, oh yeah, I do want that vacuum. I can't fault her for that, but I kind of thought there was always a difference, but I think it's just because I look back and that looks so ridiculous. But in 40 years from now, will people look at the advertisements that I see and say the same thing. Probably. Probably. I don't I have very little doubt that I wonder that all the time. I'm like, what are my children gonna look back on and say, I can't believe my mom let me do that. Okay, because is there any example of men this way? Any advertising, any 
Is there anything in in a man's world that kind of parallels what we're talking about that we experience? Surely. Surely, because men... Is there anything we look back on that we thought, boy, you were just such a tool. Like, how did you fall for that? Cigarette advertisements. Okay, that's a good one. That's 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 the one that... But, I mean, that was targeted at both men and women. That's true. Women were seen as a viable commodity for cigarette. Cigarette manufacturers had no... No qualms about advertising to both men and women. So I wonder... Because mm. we were targeted by women in posters that made us want to be like them. And men were targeted with women in posters because they like to look at women. And Yeah, and they want they look at that and say, I want to come home and see my wife vacuuming in her skirt and her heels and her apron. Right. Or even a car. You know, they don't put a guy next to the car and then the guy's like, I want to be like that guy with that yeah. car. No, they no, put no. a naked woman on it and they go, I'll get more of those. Uh, I, uh-huh. But and nothing's women. changed. Women are still marketed to by pictures of women and men are still marketed to with pictures of women. Wow. <laughs> wow. I'm questioning so many things. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know where to go with that. So I'm going to bring up the last quote from this article that I want to talk about because I think I'm going to need a little time to digest all that. Um, so there was a Scottish author named Val McDermott who was criticized by author Ian Rankin, who's very famous, for her graphic depictions of violence. And she had this to say... There is still a funny notion that women should not write violent fiction, and yet women, more often than not, are the victims of sexual violence. So what are we saying? That the ones most likely to experience it should not write about it? Oh. I'm like, ooh, drop the mic right after that, because... Wow. 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 Yeah. And then there's the question as to... Why? It begs the question, why do women like it? And there was a uh, 2010 article in the Journal of uh, Social Psychology and Personal Science that had some thoughts Mm -hmm. about that. And Ranker distilled it for us. I'm going to distill it a bit further. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It helps women learn tactics to survive and prevent becoming a victim, which I would say that's probably when I talk with my friends about true crime stuff, we're like, yes, I want to know about this. True. I want to know about this so that I can not be that girl. If I'm going to be that girl, I want to be that girl in a way I've never heard about. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, when you see it on the screen, are you not fantasizing what you might do in that situation? Yes. And uh-huh. I always wonder, you know, would I have the guts to mm-hmm. to do what needed to be done? I hope so. I hope so. Um, it's a chance to inhabit the role of a smart woman. Hmm. Yeah. That, you know, of course, these smart women have a script and somebody else thought it all out. So they have the opportunity to be smart. But isn't it nice to say... Now I'm prepared again. Now I'm prepared for that situation because I've seen the smart woman. I get to be the smart woman now. Agreed. True crime fiction takes seriously things that the broader culture looks down on. Oh, that's, that's a, a good one. Yeah, I thought so. Women are portrayed in culture as naturally caring and born to be mothers, which yes, yes. and I think that is that's hard for me because that is my nature. Mm-hmm. That is, that is who I am. But 
I don't want to be stereotyped that way. Does that right. make sense? Yes. Yeah. The author writes, uh, true crime shows that women do not always bounce back from heartbreak, that they can actually become calloused and irreparably damaged. These are things that women come in contact with on a daily basis, but they don't have the opportunity to hear or read about in the broader culture. Which wow, I think that's, that is so insightful. I thought so too. I thought that was really like to look back, to look at that and say, yeah, we're like kind of damaged so that they understand the justice system. Mm. And I think that might be both men and women because we don't spend as an average person much, if any time in a courtroom understanding all of this. So That's it's kind true. of interesting to, to see it from that perspective. Uh, women can relate to the victims. Again, that's true. We're, I think that we want to relate to somebody, and if we are generally in the culture of victims, then the art would reflect that, and we can relate to that. Yes, that makes sense. Yes, and then facing fears mm-hmm. for sure. This is from the journal article itself. Um, it's possible that reading these books may actually increase the very fear that drives women towards them in the first place. In other words, a vicious cycle may be occurring. A woman fears becoming the victim of a crime, so she turns to true crime books in a possible effort to learn strategies and techniques to prevent becoming murdered. However, with each true crime book she reads, this woman learns about another murder and his murderer and his victims, thus by increasing her awareness of fear and crime. So it's this cycle. I feel like it's kind of like the nightly news. It bleeds, it leads. So you may live in a very safe city, but the crimes that are most violent tend to be the ones that are reported up top at the news. So you get this perpetual fear. I wonder if that's not a little bit what's happening in our political spectrum is that all people are hearing about is the negative stuff. And right. so they think it's a not to say it's not a big problem, but that it's a larger problem than what it actually is. Right. They're overestimating the prevalence of these situations. Yes. Not because they are invalid or unimportant, but because they are still small. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, that... It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Okay, so criminal minds. Yes. I love it, you mm-hmm. know. Well, the smart Dr. Reed was having a conversation with JJ one day because JJ did not want her son having any real knowledge or, you know, participation with ugly and harsh things. And her mom had kind of gone behind her back and told her, told her son something. Okay. And so she was mad. And so she was talking to Spence about it and, and saying that, you know, I want him to, you know, read fairy tales and see happy endings. And, you know, Spencer can't hold it in. And he's like, well, actually fairy tales were originally very gruesome and violent and very scary. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. And so she's like, thanks. (laughs) Thanks a lot. And he goes, no, no, no. The point being that they were written so that a child could learn to face his fears in a healthy way mm-hmm. and know that the monster can be killed, which is actually something, you know, Gideon had said before, too, in other yeah. episodes. Oh, okay. The monster can be killed. The, con- the monster can be mm-hmm. killed. So um, it's interesting because maybe we are drawn to them in the same way we might be drawn to a fairy tale, except that all the stuff we're reading doesn't always end with a victory. Right. But we're trying to find a safe space to confront our fears before we're there. Yeah. Well, you I know. mean, I always feel like I want to know all these things. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. 
So now let's jump into The Handmaid's Tale. As I mentioned before, I've seen them all, read the book. I thought, I'm kind of really glad that they waited to make this into a television series. I'm glad they made a television series rather than a movie. Truth. Uh, I'm really glad they waited until now because the book would not have had any diversity in the cast. It was a very, that's one thing that's different between the book and the movie is the book was extremely whitewashed because it was basically Nazis and white supremacists. Mm. Um, it was beautifully filmed, well acted. I loved the rich internal dialogue that we got of Alfred. I love narrating. That. I thought it was really good and not not the same feeling as like Sex in the City. Again, I actually have never seen that show. Another one I've never seen. Oh, it's good. <laughs> It's, it's good. Another day. The, the Another most, day. Yeah. I, well, I don't know that that would fall <laughs> under the intersection of crime and entertainment. So that might not be one that we visit, but it, I thought it was, I, I really enjoyed that particular show. But, but I really did like how they narrated her inner monologue. Um, it felt so natural. Mm-hmm. It felt like exactly what happens in my head sometimes. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, and uh, this tracks very, very well with the book. Okay. So the entire first season does. And so when the first season ended, I was extremely curious to see where they were going to take it because it was moving beyond the novel. Oh. And I have been very satisfied. I've been very satisfied with the extras that we get in the show. And I appreciate that uh, Margaret Atwood has had her fingers in the production of this so right had, it keeps yeah. it true it keeps it, it yeah. authentic it was good so what did you think about the running at the very beginning of the episode oh i think it was heartbreaking yeah to see them running well immediately when it opened i definitely had a problem discerning what time frame they were in and i i realized that was done purposefully and i'm right. glad it was because it was a really big impact to see the flashback and to have that dystopian uh, environment really laid out through through that um but you know a little piece of me was like just slow down you'll make it further if you don't crash like yeah. quit uh-huh. quit doing that quit yeah. panicking but you know what that's me having watched all these true crime things yeah. because i'm like no 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 no, don't be like the girl with the heel and breaking and screaming just no focus yeah. <laughs> like yeah if you're if you've got heels on, kick them off and run. Right, like focus. You yeah. know, it's like the same way you yell at your football team. You know, like quit looking at the guy behind you. Focus. Three point touch and run. Like, yeah. <laughs> protect the ball. Get to the end zone. Quit worrying. Yeah. So that really kind of got me about that. But when she took off and they had to split and she heard that shot ring out, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, the heartbreak. And yet, like a mother does. Yeah, she she kept running. She had to take the chance. So I thought that was particularly inter- interesting compared with the very next scene where she's now a handmaid in her room, all dressed in red, talking about how they're not worried about the handmaids escaping because they wouldn't get far. The real escape is death. Right, and which was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, because... 
you know there are people out there who are dealing with those kinds of thoughts and then that really is the only escape. And yet you know that a lot of people who have those kind of thoughts, escape is not what they're aiming for at all. So, or they think they want an escape but it's because depression is a liar. Right. Or they just absolutely think that, that they're doing good by people. They're not actually trying to escape anything. They're trying to help others, which is where that lie comes in. But you see people in this situation who, who are really, they do need an escape. Yeah. yeah. But, but yet she stays because she recognizes mm-hmm. that she's going to, to come back for her daughter. Okay. That's what really, that's, like... That's her goal. That's her goal, and you could hear it in her voice, even as she talked about that being the only escape. Just in the whole filming of it, I heard something happen there, saw it when she said that that was the escape, except just the look on her face, which you couldn't even see very well. Yeah, because she's lit from behind. She's lit she's- from behind, and yet I saw it. Like, escape's not the goal. Victory is. Yeah. You know, who was like empowering for such a imprisoned moment. All right. um, Should we talk about like characters specifically? Uh, Tell me what you thought of the commander's wife, Mrs. Waterford. I feel so awful for that woman. Okay. I know she was ugly. Okay, She was really ugly. She was very ugly. To me in the beginning. You have sympathy for her. That's interesting. I kind of do. Yeah. Kind of do. Because I wonder how much. I don't know yet. I wonder how much she's in prison, too. That's interesting. Uh, coming from somebody who knew the story, I had a very different impression of her. So I'm sure. Um, and I may be totally wrong. Well, and but- no, and that's why when I asked you before we started watching it, I'm like, you kind of know about this, right? And you were like, no, I don't really know anything. I had nothing. Yeah. I had no and, uh, frame of reference. That's why I was really like, I'm just going to stop talking now because <laughs> I really want to hear from somebody. And... It's kind of like going back and somebody's reading your favorite book mm-hmm. for the first time and you're a little bit jealous because you want to be able to read the book for the first time again. You know how different it is when you read a book for the first time as a child or when you read that book for the first time as an adult or you read that book for the first time as a middle-aged adult. You have a different perspective on it and a different idea of what it all means and right. so it's it's interesting okay so you feel sorry for her i okay. did well i questioned i questioned what was what were the circumstances that she was imprisoned to because societies mm-hmm. when they imprison one section the other section is no less in prison yeah. to the people who are truly in control right yes that's an astute observation um, so they, they have the household servants or Martha's. Did you have any impression or opinion about that? Well, I, you know, the Again, biblical references are, are off the charts, right? Yes. And, and so, yeah, the Martha's. Well, and did, the, did they ever say the name of where they're living? It's Gilead. Okay. No, the, they I really don't think didn't. they did. I, I realized that as I was reading it. Gilead is the name of the country that has been carved out of the United States okay. that is now under the control of... And that makes sense. It's yeah. kind of like a... Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I, I did catch the Marthas, um, but it, it's definitely a biblical throwback because they, you know... Yeah. Martha was the doer. Yes. You know, but let's be, let's be fair to Martha though, because uh, Martha in the Bible was also the one to go straight up to Jesus's face and be like, Hey you, yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. What? So uh, Martha's were not like, 
subservient. You know, Martha had a great relationship with Jesus, so much so that she had so much comfort with her master that she was like, what are you doing? Talk she to had me. The, she had the freedom to question. She had freedom to question. And Jesus was in the Bible with the stories of him loving her. Yes. Like coming to her and holding her and being yes. kind to her. That was a true relationship. So, Okay, so... Here's something interesting, and we'll get to this in a minute. There was the uh, ceremony yeah, at the end, and I noticed that the Bible is under lock and key because the only people who are allowed to read it are upper echelon males. Right. And I wonder how much of the quote-unquote Martha relationship any of the women would be aware of. If they they didn't, if they hadn't studied it prior to the founding of Gilead, would they have even realized that? Right. No, I'm sure not. I mean, we have people today who don't realize that. Right. (laughs) Um, Right. You know, not to knock it, but there's a Bible study called "How to Be a Mary in a Martha's World." And, and Martha is like thrown under the bus mm-hmm. a little bit. Now that's being broad brushed. The Bible study is actually really good mm-hmm. because it's focusing on how to be calm because Mary in the story, her sister, Martha's sister is sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha is piddling and doing and da 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 da. And then Martha, like any good older child with type A personality goes, Hey, she's not helping me. Will you tell her to help me? Right. But there's that tenacity. Hey, Jesus, uh-huh. tell my sister to do what she's supposed to do. I love Martha. Right. And so he says, she has chosen the better route. Okay. She has chosen the better, better yeah. option. So he kind of admonishes Martha for just being a busybody and caring more about the stuff than about the relationship. Yeah. That is interesting. interesting. So all of that aside, but yeah. um, I thought if the Bible being under lock and key is very interesting mm-hmm. because... Um, it shows how easily it's very dystopian. I will say that. All right. Uh, how about the driver, Nick? Did you get any impressions of him? Oh, I think he likes her. Well, I think he likes her too. Do you have any reservations? I mean, he could be uh, the spy that they kind of reference. Uh Yeah. They call him eyes. Eyes. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, I I think he could be. I don't know. I don't really know. I, I'm kind okay. of, but my okay. initial impression was he's got a bit of a flirt. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I Yeah. And I totally got that too. And I just want to, that's again, coming from a foundation of, I know what's happening. I know what's coming next. Yeah. I'm curious as to what you think about everything. So I really had a lot of affinity for, uh, of Glenn as well. Uh, who was played by Rory. Oh, 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 yes. yes. The, the actress who played Rory. Yes, because I had to Girls. ask you that. I yeah. was like, hey, it's Rory. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yes, yes, it is. Uh, tell me your impressions on her. Um, you know, it's interesting because... What's the main character's name again? Offred. 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 Okay. Offred, but it's of all the handmaids are na- named for their commanders. So if they move to a new house, they get a new name. Oh. They're of... The commander's first okay, name. Okay, so she so is of Fred. She is of Fred or Offred. Offred. Okay, uh-huh. so um, you know when she was kind of talking about her friend of Glenn. Uh huh. Yes. So um, this is her walking partner, right? Her walking partner, and she's talking about her with such disdain. And immediately, I'm like, "Whoa, sister, do you think she's not going through what you're going through?" I actually kind of took offense with Offred because I was like. Really? Why do you think that she is different than you? Mm-hmm. Why do you, she's in prison just the same way 
It's interesting how a cult does that. Yes. How it absolutely creates this idea that the next person must have it all together. They must be true. They must. And then it's uh, me versus all y'all. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting. So actually, I kind of was like, back up, sister. That girl is oh, just good. like you. Yeah. And so when... Yeah, when they get later... Later, when they get to the end and they're, they're, they start chatting, mm-hmm. they've been walking together for several months already. And they mention how nice it is to finally meet one another because they realize you are a safe person. You're a person who is not a quote unquote true believer. Right. You know, they, they can speak a little more freely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's what I kind of thought. Um, although I'm sure there are people who are true believers in there, but usually there's far less than you think in a cult. Yeah. It's the upper control. It's that, that is actually the true believer Mm -hmm. and it's, that's why it's so oppressive. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So there was the, there was a whole section of a flashback to the Rachel and Leah center, which they called the red center. Right. Yeah where they did the training and they talk about the plague of infertility. This is where you kind of get some of the backstory of how, how did this place come to be? How, how did we end up here? Because you can see in Offred's in flashbacks, Offred's early life where she had a husband, she had a child, she had a job, she had, you know, a life. Mm-hmm. She had friends. She went to college she was normal. She was normal. She was like any of us. Right. And how did it go from that, where she was an adult woman with a child, and now she is a slave? <laughs> well, so something stu- stood out to me. Okay. Do tell me what stood out to you about the Red Center. Um, so visually, you catch um, this tag on their ear. Yes. First um, time you see it's when she's in the bath. You see it in the bath. Um and I know you're asking me about the center, which is that's before right. I see it. No, that's fine. Right? However, when I saw the tag, I understood why they grabbed her and took her there. It wasn't that she physically had a child with her. She had been tagged as someone who could produce a child. Uh, I don't... She hadn't been tagged at that point when they, when they took her. Okay. She had not been tagged because either. somebody had said, "Oh, when you're when she was running, yeah." And the the girl said they weren't going to let any of the red tags get away. And I thought, "Oh, uh, I think it. I think maybe it was anybody who was of an a a childbearing age. They weren't going to let any women get away. Oh, okay. so they weren't yet tagged. Okay, so she wasn't tagged when she was running when they were trying to run to Canada at the very right. beginning. She was not yet tagged. Okay, so maybe I misunderstood that because yeah. when they were talking about, I tried to escape once and I ran and and everything, and then the the lady says, "Well, they weren't going to let the red tags get away." I assume that meant she must have been tagged before that. So mm-hmm. okay, no. so maybe I'm wrong about yeah, that. Okay, that was, yeah. All right, so I guess with the center, though, I mean, it was just, you know, brainwashing and cult training and, you know. Oh, such it's a... horrible. So, oh, such a it's perversion horrible. of the Bible. Oh, man. Oh, just, it's an abomination. Agreed. And it's so hard because you're thinking there is maybe four people in that room who have control. And all of those girls, and they're all so afraid. 
Well, and do you think that that's why they did what they did to Janine? Janine was the red-haired girl, mm-hmm. and she spoke out shortly after right, being Right, and that's in. why they made an example of her. Mm-hmm. That's and what they do. We're breeding stock. We don't need an eye. That's right. Oh, it was so oh, harsh. Oh, it was really awful. Um, and tell me uh, your impressions on Offred herself. I think she comes across tenacious. Yeah. Um, she comes across as somebody who more than others at the time, like before you start to know anybody else. But when you're looking at her, I can see her. She's fighting against the Stockholm syndrome. She's fighting against, she's trying to keep in her mind fresh who she is. So right in the beginning there, she goes through a, a very common psychological technique, right? Um, you know, white chair, brown yeah. table, white yeah it's a you know, calming it's a calming it's a grounding okay it's a grounding of i know who i am and where i am because when you're in that situation it's so easy to then internalize it mm-hmm. um you know and so to be able to remind yourself who she is who she loves who her daughter is and then finally well, at the end she says my name is yes which is amazing maybe my favorite part as a fan of the book, maybe my favorite part of this entire episode, because you learn Hannah's name and you learn Luke's name in the book, but you never learn Offred's true name. Oh, and I was delighted to be able to know that Offred's name was June. Mm-hmm. I loved it. it I was loved so, it too. Oh, and it was tenacious powerful. just to sit by herself and do the work mentally yeah. to stay sharp or to do what her friend said, keep her together. Yeah. Keep her, <laughs> keep her act together. Yeah. Yeah. And that was super important. And so, um, that my impression of her was an immense amount of strength. Um, even as I know she was falling apart yeah. inside. Um, but I also kept thinking there are others like you. I can't wait to see you come together. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, Interesting, and I thought that was the difference between June and Janine. Mm-hmm. Is Janine was broken almost immediately. Immediately, and you know, then we see her pregnant at the end, and they beat. She's up a the, true believer. Yeah, and so, well, but she was brainwashed into being. Well, a true that's believer. what I'm saying. Is that yeah, true like, believers are brainwashed? They're broken. Yeah, it's like being trafficked. If you're, you're or you're groomed for you, these things are psychologically powerful and 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 they do create the quote unquote true believers in that whether that's a believing that you hate yourself mm-hmm. and that that you that you deserve to be hated which is just as yeah as unreal you know um or that you believe in in these systems of oppression right. um so it's it's interesting to watch them psychologically fight because that's the hardest fight Mm-hmm. In my opinion. Yeah. And then we got a little description of the colonies. They were mentioned early on. Be careful. You'll get sent to the colonies. And then we have Moira, who... So sad. Uh-huh. Yeah. Moira, who we come to know is June's friend mm-hmm. from before. And they were together in the Red Center. We find out she's believed to be dead. Right. And she tells Janine very explicitly what the colonies are. You keep it together because your skin will peel off in sheets when Mm -hmm. you're sent to the colonies. 
and that's now I'm not sure I believe what I'm told there about okay. it. Okay, uh, you know who it, is this bastard? And why is he lying to me? Right, kind of. Kind of yeah, because I'm yes. thinking, well, those are fear tactics, and and that's very okay. true. You okay. know, like you, if you want to keep a group controlled, then you absolutely exaggerate where they're going so that if you can make that worse than this, then if you can, then you, you can, can control, them you can to, control them by the comparative. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's, what's horrible because okay. you make them think they're jumping from the frying pan into the fire. And so why not stand in the frying pan? Okay. Um, which is a technique to, to kind of break them. Sure. Right. Um, this fear, I'm not sure. It's kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. the village, okay. those we don't speak of. Oh, that, that was how a I, good movie. That's a good that, movie. That movie didn't get a lot. It was like, poo-pooed when it oh, came out and I thought it was, it was really so good. good. I thought it was really good. It was so good. I it loved was, it. It was the, my favorite kind of like thriller. I like I liked the movie The Shining because yeah. it was a much more psychological. Now yes there was some blood and some mm-hmm. you know stuff or whatever. Yeah. But and I thought the village was very much in the same vein of like the thrillers that are not about gore and blood and guts or just jump scares you know it's a little bit more about that right so yeah Yeah. so that's the impression i got with the colonies i'm kind of like one eyebrow up on that okay that's Um, fair yeah i can appreciate that so what did you think of the ceremony okay so my first thought Uh uh-huh as i'm watching this unfold and i i'm getting the gist throughout the whole thing you Mm -hmm. don't have to wait till the ceremony to understand what's about to happen here um but then of course he reads the bible verses that was about creepy that everybody in the house comes together for the beginning of the ceremony it's like they try to purify it make it holy oh so um it and makes it, me feel dirty. Yeah, it's horrible. And they're using the Bible to to say that it's okay for this to happen. And and I got a lot of words about that. But but when <laughs> but when we came through and I realized what's going on, I'm thinking um, after the flashback, I realize what day and age it is because in the beginning, like I said, I didn't know. So right. I'm thinking maybe th- that the handmaids. This is in a, a a time where we didn't have fertility clinics. Um, and I'm thinking, well, no, 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 wait, if this is in the future and like, she's on her iPhone in the flashback. So, um, so obviously, um, why not in vitro? I'm not, I'm sorry. I mean, it's one thing to say I'm going to be a donor and, and, uh, or even forced into being a donor. Um, but that, why would you require them to have a bedroom scenario when it's very, very easy to just create babies in the laboratory, well, relatively speaking? And then I realized this has nothing to do with fertility. Yeah, it's all about control. This is and about I, control. Well, and it may be a little bit about fertility, just a little bit, because there's the dropping birth statistics and I don't think that that's necessary I think maybe they were not having success with additional interventions maybe that's true but having no idea about the rest of the story right my initial thought is that this is not necessary right this this man even if they were going to do it at home they could still turkey baster that mess yeah they do not have to have such a horrific ceremony where the handmaid is laying on the lap of the wife and nobody's happy to be there Everybody looks uncomfortable. Oh, it's nobody's, horrible. Nobody's enjoying it. If you're going to do a surrogate all. and you're going to do it the natural way, then my gosh, does the wife have to be a part of this? I mean... Well, and it's, again, it's about see, control. And that's why I'm like, it's not... It's it, The fertility is the thing being used. Mm-hmm. 
But the truth is they're using that thing to create a life they think is right. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's about so ugly. people thinking this is how it ought to be. And uh-huh. this is the thing we're going to use to scare them into it. Ugh. You know, it's so that was very interesting to me. But the ceremony itself was like horrifying. Yeah. No, but knowing that there yeah. are people out there who are and have dealt with horrific situations. Mm-hmm. For sure. Did you have anything that you didn't understand that you'd like to understand more fully? I think I'm really interested to watch the next one. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I may have to go and just start watching it somehow. I don't have Hulu. Uh-huh. They have, so. they have like a seven-day free trial. Okay, so, so. When you get to, when you're at a position where you have a little, maybe a break in school and you're going to be home. I may have to you do know, that. You may, ha- you may have to, or, you know, you can just be like. Hey, Christy, can we throw the kids in the pool and watch A Handmaid's Tale? Because yeah. I'd be happy to watch with you. No, that sounds good. Yeah. But yeah, no, too. I'm really interested to see what happens because um, the more I realized that it was about the cult, it was about the the control, it was about extreme beliefs, that's when it really grabbed me. Yeah. Because up until that point, the dystopian environment that they were trying to coldly create that was sort of this yeah, just solution to infertility. I, yeah. No, I wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't buying in. Yeah. And then when I realized the Bible is under lock and key, when I heard her talking about this is what God has done, this is, and I thought, oh, yeah, it's that kind of story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's that kind of story. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad I got to see it kind of from a fresh perspective. As you know, I mean, I read this book. 23 years ago the first time and you know I was a very young person at that time and it was it means something different to me now than it did then like what what's the difference between um, what you felt then and what you feel now I think then I could recognize the plausibility of it because in the book they talk a lot about um how all currency had become electronic Oh, that's so scary. And so, well, and even in, you know, the mid-90s, when I read this, I said, it's scary because I can see us going this way. But I don't think this would ever happen. And it's interesting, here we are in the late 20-teens, and it seems perhaps more of a possibility than it ever has in my life prior to this yeah but only because we're so divided and i don't really care what side you're on as long as you're willing to listen to the other side and try and understand it you know but at we're so divided right now and i see religious zealots Mm -hmm. of all stripes and i don't see i don't see enough people who are religious but not condemning speaking up right and i that's kind of where i am and it feels more possible and more real and more frustrating because i'm now at an age where okay so as an 18 year old reading this i was the person who would have probably been a handmaid and as a 41 year old woman i'm sent to the colonies i'm an unwoman i'm dead in this this dystopian future, I'm worthless. And there's parallels. Uh, think about 
women and as, as they get older, they no longer have a place in their workplace or they have to be considered um, young, no matter what age you are. There's a parallel to that, that at some point you're, you're done. Yeah. Um, you're a has-been. And so as a woman particularly, but it's hard because you have to fight against that idea of being alone in such a way that it's me versus them. But that right. starts with that division. And I think culturally, we do have an epidemic of you're either agreeing with me or you're the enemy. Yes. And, and that's, that's the hard part because disagreement breeds victory. Uh, yes, it for does. all of us. Conflict. No matter is, what quote-unquote side you're on. The conflict creates beauty. So it's not about the fact that we disagree. It should be about respecting the different viewpoints and being delighted by the differences rather than taking it personally offensive that your opinion is different than mine. And so in that, we we form these groups. We believe this way and they believe that way. And then all of a sudden... It's all very us and them uh-huh. instead of... And then you start seeing we. the groups use disgust. Make the other people look disgusting for believing that, making them less human. Yes. Well, and that's something I've noticed I've read about and I've really tried to change um, not only in my speech but in my thinking is not calling a person a piece of trash not using like Mrs. Waterford said it she referred to the previous handmaid as new and trying to train a stupid dog right see that's the dehumanizing it, it was dehumanizing and you know you, you call people a piece of trash or a monster it's a way of dehumanizing people and a way of making it okay to treat them poorly mm-hmm. and i've really made an intention not only in my speech but in my thinking to not dehumanize people to accept that some people do terrible evil things but they're still human Mm -hmm. and and to deny that they're human actually means that you can't even address the problem effectively Mm kind of like the issue we were talking about earlier because they're just a dog they're just a monster right so you just just dismiss it yeah well what if that person has something in them that, that we could learn from to apply to others or you know or just the fact that even in differences of opinion on on mundane things mm-hmm. that um that it's we don't we don't have to succumb to slippery slopes we, we are don't. at the top of the food chain so we get to decide like where the boundaries are i think for me i like to make a boundary between um deciding that there are some people i would rather be with more often because we align in these sorts of ways. And so I enjoy them. Um, but that, that doesn't mean I exclude people who I disagree with from my kindness, from my support, from my prayers or from my respect of them, my honor of them. And so it's okay to say, Oh, I'm going to hang out with these people because well, we get along, we kind of agree Mm -hmm. and and maybe I don't get along with that person all the time. But that, that vision that I have, that boundary I have is meant to guide me in my life, not to exclude people. That's it's, it's tough. It's, but how do you change that broadly? I mean, I don't know. And I don't know. And I don't know that you do. And I, uh, well, I mean, we have to, We've got to because we've got to, but I don't know how to do it. And I don't know. I don't know if I hate to say like, I'm just one person. How can I change it? Well, I can change it to the people around me. There you go. You know, we got to make it viral. I don't know how to make it viral. (laughs) 
I it's got to bleed to go viral. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Man, good thoughts. Yeah, it is good thoughts. So uh, next time we'll uh, watch a movie and we'll read this article of the unmarried fertility crime and social stigma, right? And kind of have um, a, a discussion about that. I don't have a feeling it's going to be a much lighter discussion than the I know, one we've we really got deep today. Kind of heavy. It is a heavy discussion today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we've really kind of changed from doing escape room yeah. and like botching it. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> and getting so stumped on those. Yeah, what do you call them? The little things, the shapes we had to make for the puzzled pint, the tangrams. The tangram. Yeah, I was like. <laughs> what is that? You know, I couldn't stand it. We really dove deep today. Well, yeah, and you know, I mean, we had talked about like in the summer, maybe watching a movie and doing a bit of a review and being a little lighter. And here we are, summer, and we're doing a deep dive into misogyny and social economic dystopian futures. <laughs> It's so true, but you know. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. This is what we're doing today. So join do, us. Yeah, do join us if you have any thoughts. I know that The Handmaid's Tale is, you know, over a year old, but we it was not, we didn't do a podcast a year ago, so well, yeah, we didn't so. have it to talk about then. And, you know, this way we get to talk about it in a way that we don't have to worry too much about Sorry, spoilers. I can only search by top. Well, Siri didn't like what you had to say. I guess not. I guess not. (laughs) You know, we didn't have a. We now we have the opportunity to talk about it like spoiler free, basically. If you if you've not seen it, you probably have not listened this far in. And if you have listened this far in, you haven't seen it. I would definitely say still watch it. Yeah, it's not ruined. Watch it. Read the book. Um, And really, this is the first episode. It's a very small part of the book. You know, we haven't talked about that a lot happens after this. So, yeah, it's, it's quite still good. worth diving into. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, if you have thoughts, let us know. As I mentioned before, I'll mention it again. Find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast. Find us on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod or email us at Killer Fun Podcast at gmail.com. All right. We'll All right. see you next time. All right. Bye, kids. All right. Well, we hope that you found that as enjoyable as we did and it was kind of nice to revisit that and man it's the heavy stuff but i don't know why we find it so entertaining but we do (laughs) well we're not alone it's very very popular show so i whenever i find something to be entertaining that also kind of makes me uncomfortable that i'm entertained by it i take a lot of heart to know that I'm not the only one that finds this interesting or fascinating. So I think it's actually good because it challenges our definition of entertainment. And so I like it because I start to redefine the power of those art mediums and entertainment. And so I'm glad I'm not alone, but I also, I sit with it for a little bit, kind of like our discussion before we started listening yeah, again. Exactly. I'm going to be sitting with that for a little while. And yeah. I don't know what any of you thought, you know, thinking about uh, the timelessness or the timeliness of that. Um, but I think I'm going to sit with that. We may, you know, in a few months have to come back when I have some coherent thoughts on it. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So next time we are going to talk about the... 
documentary. It's sort of a documentary that's on Netflix called The Staircase. And it's about a gentleman who's accused of murdering his wife, probably pushing her down the stairs. There's a lot of contention about that. And it covers uh, her death some, but it's more about like the defense and his case. And it's recently-ish on Netflix. So it wasn't made for Netflix or by Netflix, but it's on Netflix now. It was a big deal when it came out. Now, there's a lot of stuff that they left out of this. So if you have something in particular that you'd like for us to cover, do let us know about that. I know there's like a whole owl defense. Yes, this is an, a conspiracy out there. Yeah, the, it's and they left it out of the documentary entirely and the question is why because it makes him look crazy yeah and that that's something we'll talk about too is what ends are they moving towards with this particular documentary so join us in a couple weeks for that yes i can't wait all right have a good one